5 through 9. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 through 9 will be our text this morning. And before we get into our text, in order to set the foundation for understanding these verses here, we have to see the argument in its fullness. In chapter 1, the author, God is the author, God presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God that is given an inheritance of all things, that He is the sovereign King, that He is eternal, that He is unchangeable. And for that reason, the author makes the point that He is greater than angels. And he makes that point because uh, those that were receiving this letter had a danger of going back to their old way of belief and uh, possibly that was a fascination with angels or because the angels were the mediators in giving the law, they wanted to go back to the law. And so he makes the point that Jesus as God is greater than the angels. And then we come into chapter 2 and he says because of this we receive the first warning of five warnings that we see in the book of Hebrews and that warning is this, do not drift, do not neglect such a great salvation. How could you turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ who is the eternal God? But then when we get to chapter 2, the argument still continues that Jesus is greater than angels. Now in chapter 1, the argument was that Jesus was greater than angels as God, but when we come to chapter 2, the focus now is this, is that Jesus is man and is greater than angels. And it's through that introduction that Jesus as man is greater than angels that we really begin to see the unfolding work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage of Scripture, verses 5 through 9, is, is a difficult passage. It spends most of the time in Psalm 8. And I appreciate what Brother Clarence said this morning is how the Psalms point to Christ. But well, we see that so clearly here in the text this morning where God brings His Word from previous generations to show how it points to Christ. But because this passage is difficult, I just want us to help think about it in these two ways. In Scripture, you see two Adams. You see the first Adam that was created and placed in the garden and fell, but then you see the second Adam, Christ, who likewise goes in through the wilderness, but does not fell. So the scripture repeatedly puts this theme that we have an Adam that represents man, and he fells, and then we have a second Adam, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he does not fell. And so as what we look at this passage, there's something that we see very simply is this. Adam had things really good. He lost them, and what we experience right now is really bad. But in Christ, it's restored, and it's better than ever. And so you can look at it like this in three different ways, and this will be the structure, if you will, or the scaffolding of the text is this. We are promised paradise, that's number one, because we lost paradise, that's number two, but in Christ, paradise is regained, that's number three. And so the title of 
concerned. What paradise is because we live in a time where it, it, it seems like anything but paradise. And so we join our brothers and sisters from 2,000 years ago facing difficult times. And what it is that we need is a word of encouragement. And we need a reminder of what it is that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you read the text with me, verses 5 through 9, this is the word of the Lord. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might face death forever. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. We see in verse 5 that there is a paradise that is promised. If you look at verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It's speaking of a future. But I want you to notice the word for, which draws us back to what was previously stated. We are given a warning passage, and the warning passage of chapter 2, verse 1 begins with therefore. Now, if you go back just two words, it tells us what the therefore is therefore. For those who are to inherit salvation, and this is speaking not about our salvation that we necessarily receive when we receive Christ, but this is talking about a future salvation. This is talking about the end when Christ uh, returns and gives us our glorified bodies and we inherit this salvation. It's talking about something that has yet to happen, but that is promised to us that will happen. And so continuing from that idea of an inheritance of salvation, he goes in verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. And so this is still connected to this argument about salvation about what we receive when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just think about it for a second. When you think about what it means to be saved, and if you were to ask someone, or if you were to be asked, brother, what does it mean to be saved? You might answer the question like this. Well, it means I've been forgiven of my sins. It means that, that in Christ there's redemption. You might say, use the word of reconciliation. That's biblical language that in Christ we are reconciled to God. You might even say, what does it mean to be saved? It might mean this, is that I'm saved from hell and I get to receive heaven. But what is focused here is something, yes, all of those are encompassed in this idea, 
but this is speaking of specifically the inheritance of a new heavens and a new earth that will be given to the believer. That we will inherit a future that is far greater than anything that we experience right now. That's the whole point of this, is that you're going to receive these things. Notice, it's the world to come, which is speaking of something future. So what is promised to the Christian? A future is promised where creation is subjected to man. In many ways, you can think of it like this, what is promised is a restoration or a return to Eden. We oftentimes like to imagine what Eden was like, and, and it's beyond what we can, we can imagine. But what we're promised is a restoration, that the world will come under the dominion of man. So that brings up this question, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. That's speaking of this, this future world here. Does that mean that angels rule or, or that angels at one time did rule? Well, in a sense, they did. Read Daniel chapter 10, verses 11. 10 chapter 10 through 11. It speaks of angels contesting with the kings of Persia. It speaks of angels ruling over nations. Now, now how do we understand that? How do we understand that? We know this is that there is a spiritual battle unseen that is taking place, that was taking place, and it was revealed to Daniel in the book of Daniel. That which is unseen to us, what we experience, and Daniel would experience, would be kings that have nations and rule, but what was revealed to Daniel that there was actually angels influencing over the nations. And so in some sense, in some mysterious way that I can't comprehend and you can't comprehend, yes, we would say in a sense angels were ruling in some sense. Angels then, in that way, were elevated above man after the fall. They do not sin, they do not experience what we experience in pain, uh, in turmoil, etc., you think about all of the things we experience. They're spirit. Yes, they're created. But they don't experience the things that we experience. And so if you had to think, if I could be a, a human being, or I could be an angel, how would you answer that? Well, just think about that for a second, because it shows some of the differences between us. There is a spiritual difference. And so they, we see, are we are later told that we are lower than angels in numerous ways, but that there is coming this promise that was not given to angels. Notice that. The world to come, it's not promised to angels. It's promised to man. There's a future promise that will come in its fullness. In Christ we are redeemed and we regain what was lost in Adam, including we regain paradise. And that's why the word, we see the words to come, meaning that something is coming that is not yet here. 
that seems confusing, if you'll just notice, it puts it in perspective, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul writes this, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, this is speaking of the inheritance of the world by the saints, the saints will be judging. Look what he goes on to say. He's condemning them because they can't handle cases within their own church, and he says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that we are to judge angels? This is speaking of something that's yet to happen, that will happen, that is promised in our future, is that man will be elevated. But because it's a promise, we're promised paradise. So what does that mean for right here and now? means we don't have it. means it was lost. You notice what he goes on to say in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. Now this is the author of Hebrews looking back upon God's word. And it's interesting, normally he's so very clear, he'll say that either God says this, or he'll say Christ says this, or he'll say the Spirit says this when quoting the Old Testament. But here, he doesn't say that. He says it's been testified somewhere. Because the whole point is this, is that we're looking back and he's going to show us Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. That's going to be the reference. And Psalm 8 itself was a psalm of David. And David, when he writes Psalm 8, he's actually reflecting or meditating upon the creation account. He's thinking about Genesis 1 through 3. He's thinking about how God brought forth the world in six days, and on that sixth day, he created Adam, and then he rested. And David's thinking back to that time. He's looking back on creation, and in some sense, he looks back on what Adam lost, but then at the same time, he looks forward to what is gained in a second Adam, and how that second Adam gives what he has gained to his people. And so he asks this question in Psalm 8, and it's in our text here. What is man that you are mindful of him? If you read the first three verses of Psalm 8, you don't have to turn there, I'll tell you what they say, is that the, the psalmist is reflecting upon the vastness of creation. God, you created all of this. There's nothing that is that wasn't created by you. you. You made all things. And then you made the pinnacle of your creation, man. That was your crowning achievement was to create man. And so in light of the vastness of creation, how large creation is, and how small we are, he says this is, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him, or that you would create me, that, that you would bring me out of nothing, and for Adam, that you would, you would create me out of dirt? What is man? He goes on to say, or the son of man, that you care for him. 
I think about that word care for a second. It means to look upon, to look after, to check on, to have concern for. It means to care. To have an abiding care for man. Because man was the pinnacle of God's creation. And man was given authority to name the animals. Did you ever think about that? We just take it for granted. It wasn't a bear that God asked to name everyone, including Adam. But it was Adam that was given the task of naming the animals. Adam was the one who was to name these things. It was Adam that was given the keys to the garden, if you will. Adam was the one that was given authority. Adam was the one that was to work the garden, to till the garden, to rule over the garden. That was Adam's job. Man, by the way, Adam just means man. He was given the task of being king of the earth. But it says, so for a little while you made him lower than angels. And we, we see that already, that they are spiritual. They're not confined to space as we are. But it notice what it says, for a little while. So Psalm 8 is showing us, as he's reflecting upon Adam, that he's looking forward to something else, that this is a prophecy, that there's, there's going to come a time where this will change. Where man will no longer be lower than angels, but he will be above them. And then you see it says this, you have crowned him with glory and honor. So if it seems odd to you for me to say that man was the pinnacle of God's creation, that's because God tells us that. Again, God did not give a reindeer the authority to rule over the garden. He gave it to a man, a man named Adam. This says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, I hope you're wondering this. You see phrases like this, the son of man, which should make you think of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. You know, or you think of the prophet Daniel, how he spoke about the coming son of man, or... And the reference is in equal to Ezekiel to the Son of Man. This is pointing us to Christ for sure. But if I was to ask you, who is the psalmist speaking of? And you answered, well, man, guess what? You're correct. But if I asked you, who's the psalmist speaking of? And you said, I think he's speaking of Jesus. You'd be correct. You'd be correct about both of those. Psalm 8 emphasizes Adam's kingship. It emphasizes his ongoing commission of the dominion mandate. And the biblical narrative after Adam loses it all. And the Bible tells us it's through one man, that's Adam, that sin entered the world. We put the blame on Adam. Which shows that the biblical narrative shows us a continued attempt of man to take dominion. God raises up men and they do what? Fell. He raises up David. And as David reflects, David's the author, the human author of Psalm 8. As David reflects on this, what was man that you were mindful of and that you care for him, that you gave him honor, that you gave him glory, and that he was to be the king? 
Guess what David was in some limited sense? He was king. He had land. He had subjects. He ruled over a people. In some sense, you could say that David was the fulfillment of this. But what happens to David? Did David truly lead his people? No, David failed. David fell. We recognize David was the good king and the standard of the kings of Israel, but then we also see that David fell miserably. And so while David had attempted to take dominion, he failed in doing it, and we just continue to follow the biblical narrative, and we see the sons of David each time doing what? Failing to take dominion. It's a failure over failure of what they're doing. But what's interesting is the Bible narrative is continually looking forward to something that's promised and will eventually take place. Even in the temple, the temple was decorated to remind the people of Eden. That there's coming a return to this paradise that was lost. That's a story looking forward in the biblical narrative. There's, there's coming this time when what was lost in Adam will be fulfilled. Now just to focus in on Adam for a second, what, what did Adam's rule in the garden look like? Well, it says this. It says putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then it follows that. This is verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. If we can apply that to Adam in the garden, this was given to Adam as king of the earth. And just turn over to Genesis chapter 1 for a moment, and let's see it from, from the text of Scripture. Look at Genesis 1 verse 28, where we see this idea that Adam was given a dominion mandate. And part of that is the image of God to rule, to reign, to have sovereignty over something. God creates man, male and female, in his own image. Then verse 28 of Genesis 1, and God blessed them. Now God is going to give them some instructions. This is what Adam's reign in the garden was supposed to look like. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that it was good, that he had made all that he had made, and behold, it was very Adam was given instruction, be fruitful, 
be multiplied, multiplied, subdue the earth, spread the image of God throughout the world. What an amazing environment Adam had to rule over. Can you imagine being the king of Babylon? God had created an environment for Adam to work and to govern with no obstacles. That's why in the curse, we all of a sudden have to work by the sweat of our brow. That's why work changes for us after the fall. That is why everything changes. In the garden, there were no obstacles, there was no barriers, there was no hurdles. That he had to know that his work would have been joyful, it would have been satisfying, it was not tiring. Eve was his perfect companion and helpmate and brought fulfillment to him. He realized that I'm not who I'm meant to be without Eve, and Eve realized that about him. And they had this wonderful, joyous relationship of working and tending to the garden that God had created and given them to rule over. They had a relationship with no discord, no arguing, everything in subjection under his feet. That's incomprehensibly wonderful, isn't it? That's paradise experienced. And it's incomprehensible, and this kind of helps us think through the question of what was man in your mind? Adam was made from the dirt of the ground and life was breathed into him by God. And this one that was created from the dirt, by the way, so are we, from dust you were made, to dust you shall return. Now it says this, we read this, these words, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. He was king over all of you. You know why that's so hard to imagine? Because we don't experience that, do we? We can't experience that. We we can't know that like Adam knew that. And at this point, we should be wondering if Adam was given complete dominion over the garden. Why is it promised to us then here in the text? You remember the first point was this is paradise promise, and the second point is this is paradise is lost. It's promised to us because it was lost. It was promised to us because what we see in the text is this. At this present time, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him and we see this as something went horribly wrong. Something went horribly wrong. If it was given to Adam and yet we do not see it, what was originally given to Adam then has been lost. But I want you to notice these two words. Yet and see. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection. What this means is what we see now, what we experience now, the life you're living now, is not how it will always be. 
The word yet speaks of a transitional period of time. So what we experience right this second doesn't seem to flow with what was promised to Adam. Because his paradise was lost. Our paradise was lost as Adam was our representative. What is it that we see? What is it that we see? We see pain. We see suffering. We see wars. We see natural disasters. We see difficulty in work. Difficulty in our labors. Difficulty in our relationships. We experience a volatile stock market, crooked politician. We experience betrayal. We experience all of these things in the now. Why? Well, Adam represented all of mankind as the head of all mankind. And theologians say he was the central head. He chose to disobey God. He chose to worship the creation rather than God. And God handed Adam over to his sins. That's what we inherit. The wonderful, beautiful, idyllic Eden was lost. And we would say now, welcome to our world. So distant from Eden, it seems. So what seems to be something out of control, that's what we see. Notice in the text, that's what we see. We see something that seems to be chaotic. We see something that is painful. That's what we see right now. We live in the results of the fall. This can be disturbing. This can be depressing. This can cause anxiety to your soul. This can, this can bring you love. But here's the message. And this is the message of the entire letter to the Hebrews. We are not to look at these things. Rather, we are to focus on gains upon Christ. We're paradise, and in whom paradise is regained. Notice what it says. It says about where we're to look in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Notice, but we, who is that? Those who are in Christ, we see something different. This is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. The word but. We can explain why things are bad. We understand why things went wrong. And we're not held down by them. It says we see him, which tells us this is where we are to be looking. This is where we are to be focusing, setting our gaze upon someone else. And here's where the story comes together. We see the emergence of the second Adam, the one who brings fulfillment to the promises of Psalm 8. So what you read in Psalm 8 is we saw that originally contemplating man and Adam specifically, we actually see it's realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a song about him. And that the second Adam is the one who brings the fulfillment of the promises of Psalm 8 of dominion. That all things right now are under Christ's feet. He is sovereign king over all things. And this is what we see. So... Here's the thing is, 
we as Christians cannot focus our gaze on how bad things are, but we need to focus our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ in whom all things are regained. If you stare at the here and now, you get depressed. But we have someplace else to look. In fact, we see this as an example from Abraham. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, it says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 5, that promises paradise regained. Abraham himself was looking forward to verse 5. Abraham himself was looking forward to that day. Does that mean that I'm just to ignore things in this world? That I'm, I'm just supposed to live as, a, as one that's a stoic and not affected by things in this world? No, not at all. We should grieve sin. We should grieve unrighteousness and injustices that take place in this world. Those should bring heartache to us. We should, we should be grieved over the things that, that, that take place, over wars, or seeing people die through natural disasters or through disease. These should bring us heartache, but they should also bring us to a reminder that the way it is now is not how it will always be. But it also means this, because things are bad, it means this is that we must be busy with that dominion mandate. And let me read to you what it is. And it is this. The Lord Jesus gives it to you. He gives it to the church. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, that is the disciples, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, that is the disciples, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is our dominion mandate. We are to tell how paradise is regained, and we tell them because it has been lost in Adam, it can be regained in Christ. And we're given how this takes place. We're told how we are to tell this wonderful news. And that's wonderful news, isn't it? That's the best news we can hear, that things went bad, but there's a promise that they're going to get better. And in fact, that right now you can experience that they're better. And here we're told how is that for a little while he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And it's for the first time in the book of Hebrews, it's been talking about Jesus the whole time, but it's the first time that, it, that we're given the name of Jesus. We see here the eternal, immutable Son of God that is the exact nature of his radiance, the exact imprint of God. Became man, took on flesh, and his abomination took on finite humanity, and for a while was in the world of angels. So, what do we see now? Well, we should see this the eternal, immutable one that took on flesh was, it tells us, crowned with glory and honor. Why? We're told. Why was he crowned with glory and honor? Because he became a high priest. A high priest who offered himself on account of his people. That's what it tells us in the text. Because. Crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. 
Christ is exalted. Christ is honored. Christ is raised and seated at the right hand as sovereign king because as a priest, he accomplished his mission. He accomplished salvation. That death brought death to death. Christ accomplished his mission. And we're given the purpose of why this happened. So that it says, by the grace of God, he might taste, might taste death for everyone. As he experienced it, he became man so that he could represent man and die for man, yet was truly God and could suffer an eternal punishment upon the cross. It was the God-man that died upon the cross. It was Jesus. And it says that so that he might taste death for everyone. For everyone. And did Christ's atoning death provide atonement for everyone that has ever lived? No, because not everyone's saved. Look at verses 10 through 11. It defines this as, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is identifying a group of people. For he sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one sort. Again, he's identifying a group of people. Everyone is that he died for man. He died for mankind. That's what's clarified here. That we are granted in his life-giving sacrifice forgiveness of sins and a restoration of what was lost in Adam. All the things that were lost in Adam were regained in Christ. So you, you must believe upon him. You must trust in him. You must come to him that he might give you rest. And we actually regain all that was in paradise right now. Peace, joy, contentment, purpose. Those are all given to us in Christ right now. You see, Christ came and represented his people, whereas Adam failed in representing his people. Christ succeeded, whereas Adam was tempted in the wilderness and sinned, and Christ in the wilderness succeeded. He has regained what was lost, including death, and he offers it to us now as eternal life. So what we are told here is it matters what you see, where you look, where you focus your gaze, because we are promised a new heavens, a new earth, where all things are, have been fully culminated under Christ's control. We lost it in Adam, but it is regained in Christ. And if you look at the world and its current trajectory, it would be easy to get discouraged. It would be easy to get depressed. But what we are told here is not to look to those things, but to look to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of what was promised. And in Him, it means it's promised to you and I. We are promised paradise because paradise was lost, but in Christ it's regained even now. I want to apply this a few ways. If Christ is truly ruling over all things, why are things so bad? Why is there such great insubordination to his rule? 
Well, two things we need to look at is Christ. We're told in Colossians that he is the head of the church. And so we see in this one sense that he rules in the heart of his people. So let me ask you, are you in Christ? And if you answer that in the affirmative, then this is something you ought to know, or you ought to ask, is this, is do you experience conviction for your sin? Do you have, 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 have a, a love for Jesus? Do you desire to actually do what he commands? Guess what? That is him ruling in your heart right now. That is a demonstration of his rule in your life. Now, is it perfect? No, we are waiting for him to gloriously transform our bodies by the power that he upholds the whole world, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. We're awaiting that citizenship to come, but we realize that in its fullness. But there's another thing to ask this is, what about the world that is in against him? We see sin. What we have to understand about Christ ruling over it is this, is Christ is by his will is governing all things to a final climactic point. All things we are told are in subjection to him. Christ is sovereign, all-powerful king, is ruling according to his plan. Things are unfolding just as he planned. It's not like Christ is a superior warrior against an inferior warrior. Christ doesn't have those struggles that we experience. Christ rules absolutely, and what unfolds is unfolding according to his will, which is mysterious and beyond us. But we do know that he does rule. And we are reminded here that whatever we are facing here and now, there is one place where we might find comfort for our troubled soul, and it's not in this world, it is in Christ. Let me say it this way, there is a new world order, and Christ is at the helm of it. We are awaiting that in its fullness, but we experience it in part now. You know, sometimes there's this message that is presented that promises us happiness in this world or health or wealth or things if we just have the right amount of faith we'll get these things whereas that is a lie from the pits of hell but we are promised peace we are promised joy contentment we are promised thanksgiving and let me tell you and prove it to you of Christ's rule in your life it is this have you ever experienced tragedy heartache or difficulties in life but yet throughout it you have a peace and a resolve that was beyond explanation. Friends, paradise has been regained for you and your soul. Because Christ brought you through it as ruler, as sovereign king. Let me finally ask one question. I want to ask the question that David asked in Psalm 8, but maybe with a slightly different emphasis. When you think of the grandeur of salvation and what is promised in Christ, here's our question. What is man that God would become man to care for and to save him? You ever ask this question? I think it's a probing question. In fact, I would recommend we start our game with it. Who am I, Lord, that you would call me 
why it's such a, a good question to ask ourselves is the answer we know is I am a sinner in need of mercy. I am a sinner in need of grace and forgiveness. And you are a loving Father that by your own choice set your love on me in eternity to know your Son. Not, not for anything that I did or not for anything that I did I deserve, but in spite of what I deserve, you set your love upon me in your Son. You set your Son to pay the price, to pay and experience death, to end death, that which I deserve. In many ways, what we see reminds us to focus on what we have heard. That way we do not drift. We were promised a paradise because paradise was lost. But that paradise has been gained and available for you now in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy. We thank you for the great love that is incomprehensible, that is beyond description, that your Son would condescend by taking on flesh of man, becoming man, experiencing all the things that his brothers did. That way we would not have to taste death as he did. We thank you for your great mercy. May this be an encouragement for us to face the day, to face tomorrow, that we would set our eyes and our gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and by your grace may we never take it off. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.